Hello and welcome to Symposium 54. Today I'm joined by Josh and Bo, and we're going to talk about ancient Egyptian wisdom. We are going to talk about the maxims or teachings of Tahotep. You can find it in the several versions. This version says the oldest book in the world. You can find it also in this collection of essays. There are many versions of the text. Is it the oldest book in the world? I think that uh, it was considered to be, but obviously there is a lot of scholarly debate with respect to when it is supposed to date from. So, for instance, Ptahotep was supposed to be a sort of uh, high-ranking official of um, Pharaoh Isesi. And uh, I think that was about 22,350 BC. But a lot of people have said that the text is later, and they are putting down the maxims of that um, high-ranking official. In ancient Egyptian, I think the office was called Jati. A lot of people right now, if you search on, on Google or Wikipedia, they call Ptahotep um, a vizier. I don't know to what extent this is correct, because I think that this is a uh, more of a Muslim term. But uh, I'm just saying it out in the open. Um, there's different names for, di for the same pharaoh sometimes. I yes. thought it was like Dijikare, probably butchering the pronunciation of that. But yeah, yeah. so fi the Fifth Dynasty. Yes. So um, just to make clear, something like the 23rd century BC. Not twenty thousand, but just two thousand odd BC. But the fifth, the fifth dynasty, is really early. I mean, the Great Pyramid has already been built, but the Great Pyramids of Giza are are uh, surprisingly early uh, when you look at them. Uh, nevertheless, the fifth dynasty, over two thousand BC, it's very very old. But I think it's the case that even though he dates from there. The oldest copy of it is like from the 12th dynasty or something. Yes. So whether it's the oldest book in the world, well, it's one of those things you just can never know. There's no, there's no clearly the oldest book. There's no there's sort of no such thing. But it yeah. certainly has got a shout for being among the oldest. Um, it's, it's one of no those claims that. that's up there with like, we've got the, the world's best ice cream. It's like, yeah, yeah. How can you even measure? Mm. Yeah. Certainly older than the Bible. Um, there are very few texts at all that are older. I mean, you can go back and find things from the sort of Assyrian age, from the age of like Ur or Uruk or something like that. It might be a bit older or would be older, but um, some cuneiform things. But there's the pyramid texts that, again, start, I think, in the Fifth Dynasty. They're obviously written on the walls of some of the pyramids, not the Great Pyramid. Um, and then there's um, sort of various tomb texts and things. Um, and only later, as we said, sort of 12th dynasty or something, much later, really, hundreds and hundreds of years later, was it transcribed onto papyrus, would have been on, on papyrus. So um, not even a book as we know it. Um, so yes. even using the word book, you've been very uh, loose with the and definition of that word. Yes. Scroll. <laughs> yeah. That's, so anyway, that's how papyrus on. comes, isn't it? Like that, that's at least mm. how it's portrayed yeah. in cartoons. <laughs> yes. So basically, uh, Ptahotep was supposed to be uh, the, uh, n the number two of Egypt, something like that. Uh, the second under the pharaoh. 
the person under the pharaoh. Uh, and and if I judge from what I from what I read, so basically it is a really interesting text, and I think it's a text that is instructional wisdom. Basically, the way the way I read it, it's it's supposed to be some basic teachings about how to live your life. It is surprisingly straightforward, and in some cases, you could say it's some of those things seem to be obvious, and sometimes we don't like being told mm -hmm. some of these mm -hmm. obvious things because we think that uh, you know I, I'm a, I'm old enough to figure it by myself. What do I need to be told? If I'm told by someone, then most probably they are looking down on me. So I think that this is a pervasive feature of uh, several wisdom traditions. And you mentioned uh, ancient Mesopotamia. I think we have a text called The Instructions of Shurupag that is also one of the oldest texts that is essentially a text about uh, advice about how to live your life. The issue and the difference between those two texts those two instructional texts is that the maxims of Tahotep is much more complete. So, for instance, there are occasional uh, missing points here or there that haven't been translated because they couldn't be. But in the instructions of Shuropag, you have lots of gaps. You start with a particular sentence and then it just ends mid-sentence. So that, that's one thing. But so. I want to say that this is a very distinct genre and it was used in a distinct way because these maxims were also used to teach people how to write. So what was going to ha what was happening was that people uh, young people in ancient Egypt they were learning to write by just copying the maxims. So it was kind of educational not just in a sense that you know there is the older guy talking to the younger guy was also a way in which they were trying to engage in the kind of moral education of children, essentially by teaching them stuff from very early on that they should internalize and to learn to write and also learn to speak about. Because there is a, a, a very heavy focus on listening. It's in a way communicated as being the first virtue of someone, if someone listens, they have a good soul. And by listening, they listen to the words of the wise, who listen to the gods, and they can impart the same knowledge to the next generation. So I think that this is uh, one of the really interesting features of the text. While we're sort of on the topic of who the book's targeting, I found it interesting that there was sort of focus on lots of different potential strata in society almost, yes. in that the advice could apply sometimes to people of almost lowly status, sometimes it could apply to the pharaoh himself. And I thought that that was interesting because as I was reading it, I was trying to figure out, okay, who is this written for? And the, the best I could kind of come up with, the best appro approximation for a single group would be perhaps courtiers and, and people sort of orbiting the court. The, the higher ups, but perhaps those who are junior in a sort of instructional manual style way. I, it's not entirely um, clear from the sort of translation who it's intended for. It's not like um, Sun Tzu's Art of War, which we covered recently, whereby it's so obviously to instruct generals 
that you can't really avoid looking at it that way, right? It's impossible to understand it meaning anything else. Whereas with this, the intention was perhaps a bit more indirect. There's certainly a broader um, stroke across Egyptian society there, which I thought was interesting because um, him being a, a vizier, as I understand it, is a, one of the most prominent court positions, then you would presume that he'd had a pretty privileged life in, in the actual sense, not in the, the modern sense. And, and so him having such concern, like saying, oh, you know, talk to a lady at the grindstone or something like that, and she may have wisdom that other people don't. Uh, that's quite worldly for someone that high up in a court, I suppose. Maybe I'm imprinting my understanding of other courts on the ancient Egyptian one because I can't say I know the ins and outs of the court dynamics, but... I don't know what you both think of that. Yeah, well, I <coughs> thought of it as um, just a very sort of general purpose instruction, a bit like uh, Works and Days, a yeah. bit like all of Hesiod's stuff. It's sort of speaking to anyone that cares to read yes. or listen to it. Um, that's what I think. And as for his position, it's not really clear whether he's a vizier. That's obviously a much later word. Um, he wasn't, don't, I don't believe he was a member of the royal family or anything. So whether he was a type of mayor, who knows? But anyway, he seems to have certainly had some sort of uh, formal position. But it seems to me from what my, my take on it was that it was, it was just sort of general purpose. This is a good maxim to live your life by, yes. um, regardless of who you are. Perhaps it might not apply to some of it to Pharaoh himself, but more or less, you know, 99.9% .9 of the general population it would apply to. Um, the other thing I, I would say in sort of general terms about it is that it strikes me as um, very modern and still apt yes. and still completely applies. A bit like Hesiod, surprising bits of it here and there are sort of ancient nonsense. Yes. <laughs> but most of it, if not nearly all of it really, absolutely applies. Um, you know, like um, it's probably virtuous to not be so conceited that you never listen to anyone else's advice. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. That's just universal, general good advice, isn't it? Or, um, <clears throat> you know, in the most general sense, don't be a dick. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what a lot of it boils down to, isn't it? Yes. Don't be arrogant. Yes. Like, don't beat up women, stuff like that. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and so it is, considering it's well over uh, 4,000 years old. Yes. It is quite, it was to me quite striking how it's nearly all, nearly all of it is still uh, uh, apposite. I think uh, basically it is written for anyone who will listen, because as he says in the very beginning, that this is a text written for the ignorant, to instruct them to wisdom and to the art of speaking. And I think that it would apply to almost anyone who would listen. So there are several instructions that don't apply for everyone but i think the text covers all kind of social strata for instance there are cases there are instructions about how to treat your superiors there are instructions about how to treat your inferiors and there are also instructions about how to rule how to rule wisely and justly 
And again, I think that, as you said, it, it is in a way surprisingly modern. And it says a lot of things that, you know, you could just apply them to your life, even though you live in a completely different society. The kind of society mm -hmm. we live right mm -hmm. now isn't like the kind of society that ancient Egypt was. Old Kingdom Egypt as well. You yes. Know, truly, even more truly, so. truly far back in the, the long, long ago. You know, yes. Their culture would have been very, very alien to us. Yes. And yet the humanness, the human aspect of yes. how people are and how we interact with each other yes. is almost identical. Yes. Well, human nature has not changed, has it? Which right. I always find interesting because we've covered a, a couple of um, ancient texts that tackle this sort of question. And you notice that actually a lot of what they're saying lands quite well and that it translates very nicely to this day and age because they're talking about elements of human nature and that's not changed at all you know anatomically modern humans have existed for 300,000 years at the very least so probably more than that. yeah <laughs> may well at, be at depending on which part of the world you're on about um but i think that that's why there are these commonalities between the present and the past yeah. and between cultures because a lot of the lessons in this book are similar to the ones in the ancient Chinese ones as well. And obviously, there wasn't that much cross pollination between ancient Egypt and ancient China. And that, that goes without saying, right? Yeah. And so, one has to presume that there's convergent evolution going on here. And when that happens, that means that the, the sort of onus for that happening is the same, the environmental factors. Yes. And in, in this case, actually, it's the human nature itself that's being expressed. And I think that that can't really be emphasised enough, that the reason it lasts so well is that it's speaking of something that hasn't changed, and therefore, actually, in many ways, it being older is a good thing rather than a bad thing. You know, normally, you, you might want advice that is contemporary and, and useful, but also, if it stood the test of time, it must be saying something about human beings that is useful. And it's also worth mentioning as well, um, according to the text at least, he's a hundred years old. A hundred and ten, I think, yeah. I find it hard to believe, but <laughs> I can imagine he's also very old. And so one would imagine that this is his notion of a legacy, which to my mind enhances the text somewhat because you know that he's not saying these things to be self-aggrandizing because he's lived his life. Um, if you know the, the original author is to be believed, it's been, been a lot of time. I'm not going to yeah. uncritically accept it, but you know, I, I think it's fair to attribute it to the person that they have. It's a classic thing people still do in this day and age, pretend they're much, much older than they are. Like I think one of the, one of the people who claimed to be the oldest ever was some well, there's some people from China that claim to be like 150 years old, and they're obviously lying. <laughs> they're obviously lying. There's a, a thing, particularly in the ancient world, the pre-modern world, just to give yourself more gravitas, you say you're older than you really are. You say you're 110. You're actually 75 or whatever. But it's, you sound more eminent if you're 110 years old, you know. Yes. It just gives your words more, more gravitas, perhaps. Well, um, in, in ancient China, mm. they believed that virtue correlated quite strongly with age yes, and right, so right. Yes. Um, the older you were thing. that's a common thing across yes. many cultures sorry go on. but the the older you were the more you should be respected mm. 
And so you had a sort of race to the top with age. Where everyone was claiming they're older than someone else. Sort of weird one-upsmanship that's the inverse of today, where everyone wants to be younger. Hmm. It's, uh, it's an interesting testament of the times, isn't it? Even in modern Japan, a I think that's uh, a thing. Where if someone's older than you, even if they're one or two years older than you, you address them in a different way and stuff. Mm. And it really is sort of a social taboo to be rude to someone that's even a bit older than you, let alone an actual elderly person. Um, and yet our culture is sort of a, more or less abandoned that sort of thing, hasn't it? Unfortunately, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, interesting that because this is also a running theme throughout the, uh, the book as well, is that you, know, you have respect for your superiors and in a sort of almost Confucian-esque sense to carry on the comparisons to China. Hmm. It's on the mind at the minute, because I've been reading a lot yeah. of it. But it, he, he talks about your, your duty to respect those who are of more of a prominent status, and that would be age as well. And to my mind, that's a far better way of living your life, because with age comes experience. It doesn't guarantee that right, of course, but we have a weird cult of youth at the current moment where being young is seen as almost morally correct over being old as if you know, it's a sort of manifestation of because you have the progress narrative I think you haven't proven yourself to be imperfect by making decisions mm. yeah this is the the craziness of our times one thing I found really interesting was that despite some differences that uh, are peculiar to the text and obviously peculiar to the culture. I do think that the, it is correct to speak of a sort of stable human nature. So for instance, mm. we've, we've uh, discussed texts from various cultures. We've discussed uh, Hesiod and his instructional wisdom. We've discussed, we are gonna discuss this. We have discussed uh, ancient China. We have discussed um, uh, Musashi's Book of Five Rings. In a way, I think there are some differences that are a bit cultural, but the core seems to remain the same. And for instance, let me just say that um, Plato really loved the ancient Egyptians. He admired them a lot. And I think he has, I think it is in the Timaeus or the Critias, one of those two dialogues, where he says basically that um, ancient Egyptians were notoriously wise. And uh, in, in opposition to the Greeks who are, who'll be forever children. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting as well, because I remember reading about the accounts of Caesar going to Egypt for the first time, and he was sort of astounded by it, in a sense. Yes. He had immense respect from what I understand. Is that, is that right, though? I might be um, misremembering. Yeah, some. I mean, the, the thing that more springs to mind for me is uh, Lycurgus or Solon, or is it both of them? supposed to have gone to Egypt and uh, accrued vast amounts of, of, knowledge. of wisdom and knowledge yes. from the way the Egyptians, uh, which is hundreds and hundreds of years before Caesar. Um, uh, but yeah, was it Solon who went there? And, I, I, think I think it was, because he left Athens yeah. after legislating. Mm, and, that's uh, right. I think whether Lycurgus went or not is sort of much debatable. more lost in the midst of, yeah, much more debatable. Um, but yeah, of course, Egyptian civilization is so much older than the, the, the Greco-Roman world or the Hellenistic yeah. world. That is one thing to mention, I think. I, yes. I always sort of say this whenever I talk about Egyptian history. Um, we sort of have to make the point 
um, how much how much older it is, or how how long the Egyptian civilization lasted. Um, and it is of no, it is interesting that this is from quite early on again, like the fifth dynasty. It's relatively early on. Yeah. Um, but then, so the point you were making is that there are universal things, aren't there? So I think if you have any collective of people, any bigger than a few family groups, you're going to have to have certain rules or certain norms, should we say, for living. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Your, yes. your civilization, your culture will not work if people don't respect each other on some level. Um, then you will never, it won't, you won't get anywhere, let alone building whole cities, a whole strings of cities with shared, a shared experience in some way. Um, so no wonder you have to, there's uh, similarities, very close similarities between ancient Chinese uh, proverbs or, or uh, morality writings and Hesiod and ancient Egypt, and, and they still apply today. Yes. No, sort of no wonder. The idea that, you know, just don't go around bullying all the other men in your community. I don't, you know. Well, there are sort of geographic factors that put the, the pressure on the Egyptians to form a civilization in a sense because of the nature of their agriculture, as in their sort of irrigation of the Nile and, and farming at the banks of the Nile in what amounts to a sort of very harsh desert around them means that they are very dependent on one another because, of course, you, you've got to, to sort out the farming situation. And if, if the farming doesn't go well, if, if people don't sort of hold up their end of the, the societal bargain, then a lot of people are going to suffer because it's not like you can, the crops fail, you can forage particularly easily in that environment otherwise. And I think that that might to why there seems to always have been a certain amount of civilization in Egypt, or at least that's my kind of guess at it. One thing to add here is uh, Herodotus and his account in histories of ancient Egypt, I think. The second book of the nine books is about Egypt almost entirely. And he said that essentially a lot of things were transported into the Greek world from Egypt, ancient Egypt. And he says, for instance, that the ancient Egyptians were the first who believed in the immortality of the soul. I don't know if that is accurate or not, but it's, it, it is quite something. And also, he says that the Greeks got the several gods of their pantheon from the, from the Egyptians. I think he only says that Poseidon was taken from the Libyans, or the god of the sea. But uh, there was an immense notion of gratitude and an immense notion of there being a kind of cultural debt mm, mm. from ancient Greeks to ancient Egyptians. Definitely. Uh, and it's, it, there's obviously more to it than that. There's sort of the Hittite people yes. um, between them in Anatolia and things. But you talked about, I want to quickly mention, just in passing really, the Book of the Dead. Yes. Um, which again isn't necessarily, well, isn't a book as we know it, it's just a set of papyrus and, um, and lasted for so many centuries that later versions are very different to the earliest versions. 
But the earliest versions, again, would have been taken from transcripts from, yeah, maybe the fifth fifth dynasty onwards. Um, and now the Book of the Dead is a completely separate thing. It sort of this always gets described as sort of spells and magic, and it is it's specifically to do with the afterlife. Yes. Um, so very different to this. Um, it's it's very very different. Uh, this is sort of how to live your life on Earth. Yes. Um, so in a way, it couldn't be more different. Nonetheless, nonetheless um, the point is, is that the Egyptian civilization, everything that came after them yeah. in that region of the world does owe them a type of cultural debt. Yes. Um, absolutely. There's no way that just by sheer osmosis. Yes. Or if you, we've mentioned like Ergus and Solon, for example, great examples that there's no way you couldn't have been influenced by Egypt. I think trade was uh, much more expanded before that. So, a lot, for instance, uh, again, Herodotus says that uh, Hesiod and Homer were the first, uh, in a sense, the first Greeks who brought the pantheon and gave them the gods' Greek names. And that was about, let's say, 8th century BC. Trade between civilizations was... Um, was uh, present uh, centuries before that. So there must have been a sort of uh, process of cultural osmosis, as you have said. And one other interesting thing to note is uh, creation myths and also mythologies. We also have several patterns in mythology. For instance, in uh, ancient Egypt, there was the myth of Osiris and uh, also the myth of uh, cre the creation of the world that bears several similarities with other creation myths. Mm. So again, there is the commonality, and but also there is the idea that despite cultural influences and cultural debts, if you would like, there is also a strong case to be made that there is, as you have said, a, a stable human nature that sort of generates a kind of worldview, and in particular conditions, particular kinds of worldview become more prominent. Two quick things to say is, um, yeah, there's, there's so many examples of the same story being retold again and again, and it seems like yeah. the earliest version we're aware of comes from Egypt. The idea of Horus yes. and uh, a, a baby being sent down a stream, uh, being abandoned and then found. I mean, there's Sargon and Moses and Romulus, and it goes on and on and on. Um, uh, but the other thing I would say is, well, you mentioned trade yeah. and the movement of peoples and ideas. The archaeology seems to show that before the Bronze Age collapse, which is, you know, 1,700-odd, 1,800-odd BC, the archaeology seems to show that before that, there was all sorts of trade around mm. Southern Europe and the Near East, the Levant, um, the, like way more than after, obviously, the, the, the Bronze Age collapse. So deep in the second millennia BC, it's not, it doesn't seem surprising at all that ideas could go from Egypt to, to Greece or the Balkans or, or Mesopotamia. Or, yeah, right, from Mesopotamia to Italy. That's it, not crazy at all. Isn't the sort of um, in favour theory of who the sea people were that they were perhaps people from sort of Crete, which of course is a Greek island today, um, and perhaps some of the, maybe even the Italian islands? So that would indicate that there would be at least some connection, right? 
Well, uh, see one of my early epochs for a whole <laughs> a whole video about the Sea Peoples. We don't know. We don't know. Cole seems convinced they were Greeks or Hellenes of some type. Uh, it seems that they came from probably came from the north somewhere. Whether that was Central Asia, Scythia, or whether it was more Europe, Central Europe, or what, we just don't know. My per personal pet feeling is that it was more than one peoples. It was more than one wave of people the archaeology, even though it's very quick, still took decades, maybe 50-odd years. I think there's waves of sea peoples. Um, again, the Egyptians actually got some literary evidence from the Egyptians. Uh, at least two or three waves of people coming from probably Europe somewhere. Um, but yeah, so to say they were just from Crete, I don't think. That's, that's sort of a bit too low resolution. But unfortunately, the answer is we just don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. um, again, the Egyptians seem to say the Sea Peoples were maybe as many as six different peoples. Um, but anyway, the general point was that this actually is pre the Bronze Age collapse. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. So it's sort of the, the old, old world, if you like, to, yeah. to borrow a phrase from Dan Carlin. And uh, it is written, let, let us move now forward to the text. I okay. think it is written in a way that does suggest that what is going to be said is something that Tahotep said, but the person who writes seems to be different. Because it says, beginning of the maxims of good words spoken by the member of the elite and high official, God's father, beloved of the God, king's eldest natural son, overseer of the pyramid town and vizier, Tahotep, for instructing the ignorant in knowledge and in the correct method of perfect speech, which will be beneficial to the listener, but of no use to the neglectful. So I think this sort of answers who he's addressing. He is addressing essentially anyone who will listen. And this is also why it was used for people to learn how to write, for children to learn how to write, because they were told to essentially copy the texts and internalize the principles that they were being taught and asked to copy. He said to his son, this is the very beginning of the maxims, do not be arrogant about your knowledge. Consult with the ignorant and the wise alike. The limits of skill are never reached. There is no craftsman endowed with perfect mastery. Good speech is rarer than greenstone, yet it may be among women at the grindstone. Greenstone meaning emeralds, meaning gems. Yeah. Um, it's rare. I thought it was um, iron for some reason. It had been oxidised or something. <laughs> or, or should bronze. I say copper, bronze, yeah. What, what am I on about iron? <laughs> but still, yeah, the idea is that real wisdom or good, solid wisdom is actually quite rare. Um, yeah. One very quick point before we go on. We were talking about how age, um, there's, there's something... Sort of intrinsically valuable about age, um, and that you you mentioned a caveat, which I just did want to because you know just because the fact that you're in your eighties doesn't necessarily mean you know what you're talking about yeah. at all, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, someone can be old and still a complete moron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but nonetheless, nonetheless, um, nearly everything he does say in it. Um, does seem to ring true, doesn't it? So I feel yeah. like he was a wise person. When you read Hesiod, um, there's like bits of it where you're, you're like, it's just nonsense, isn't it? To us, 
Yeah. It just has no better. It's just superstition, it's superstition based on nothing. Yeah. Whereas he keeps it very, uh, very real. Down to earth. Like. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's... 110 year old keeping it real. <laughs> <laughs> 4,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, uh, but, well, so, sorry, I'll let you get into the individual no, no, examples. No, no, but, um, uh, but it's most of it, nearly all of it, was my feeling anyway. Is that it's, it's difficult to argue with. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, listen to people that are considered wise as well as those that aren't. Um, I think that's very important. Mm. Yeah. Because quite often someone that is kind of not very knowledgeable, not very wise in sort of the, in sort of the classic sense, sometimes they'll still come out with something that's, that's superb, that's a yep. gem that they've figured out entirely for themselves. Um, you know, never discount anyone, I think. Mm. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.